Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter 2. And we'll be beginning our reading at verse 25 up through chapter 3 and verse 4. Romans chapter 2, verse 25 through chapter 3, verse 4. Well, let's hear now the word of our God, beginning in verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us here this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to the passage that we read from the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 2, focusing our attention on verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And then verses 28 and 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now here in chapter 2 of Romans, Paul continues his systematic refutation of justification by works as taught by the Pharisees, who of course were the dominant theological influence in the first century Jewish synagogue throughout the world. They were teaching that our right standing with God is based upon our works in some degree. 
Well, of course, there's grace involved. Luke 18, the Pharisee at the temple said, thank you, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other sinners around me. So he was giving thanks that by the grace of God, he was able to be right with God on the basis of his own obedience, on the basis of his own works. And for the Pharisaical Jews, the works on on the basis of which they were right with God were both moral and ceremonial. They were both moral and ceremonial. And so Paul in chapter 2 has been pointing out your moral works, your moral righteousness, your obedience to the Ten Commandments, for instance, these types of commands, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't murder. He, He says you haven't kept this law. You haven't obeyed the Ten Commandments. You don't have a moral righteousness in the sight of God that would be adequate for heaven. Because the soul who sins shall die. And he says that in a number of different ways throughout chapter 2. Basically, uh, if you sin, you will be judged according to your works. The man who does evil will receive tribulation and anguish. Verse 9, so on and so forth. But it's also ceremonial. It's important for us to recognize this, that in fact, the Jewish Pharisees rested their righteousness in the sight of God not only upon moral works, but upon ceremonial. And this is almost always the case when you have people contending for justification by works they begin to feel uncomfortable with the moral law of God because it's too convicting. And so they begin to shift the emphasis to these various religious ceremonies. And these are a lot easier to keep than the moral law of God. It's a lot easier to burn some holy incense or this or that than it is to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a lot easier to attend worship regularly and be religious than it is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the Pharisees, in a way, understandably shifted the focus from mere obedience to the law of Moses in its moral aspect to a ceremonial obedience. You can see this as this Pharisaical teaching sadly took root in the early church as is reflected in Acts chapter 15, the Council of Jerusalem, when they're dealing with this heretical teaching, as it's begun to be spread among the Galatians and some of these various regions where Paul planted churches. The Jewish influence upon Jewish Christians and then upon Gentile Christians proclaiming this false gospel of works. So for instance, Acts 15.1 And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's important to notice here that they're not merely saying apart from circumcision, you can't be a card-carrying church member. You can't have these horizontal privileges of the covenant community. Because, of course, there's a new perspective on Paul that's out there that you hopefully you never run into it but if you do you know that they're reinterpreting the New Testament to say well the real problem with these Judaizers these uh, the, the real problem with this false gospel is just that they were requiring certain ceremonies to be practiced by the Gentiles so they could be church members but it had nothing to do with their vertical right standing with God 
Justification, in fact, had nothing to do with what Martin Luther was concerned about, his righteousness in the sight of God. It was merely horizontal. They were essentially imposing unbiblical church membership qualifications. You've got to be circumcised. But notice, Acts 15.1, that's not what it says. It says this is a salvation issue. In order for you to be saved from your sins, and at the heart of that is justification, you need to be circumcised. So it's ceremonial, but notice verse 5. Verse 5, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So there you've got the ceremony, you've got the moral aspect. It's both and. and of course, the new perspective on Paul would say, uh, in this uh, regard, they would say, oh, it was just ceremonial. They weren't saying that you're justified by your moral good works. It was only circumcision. It was only the Jewish ceremonies. And as I mentioned, it's only horizontal. But the new perspective on Paul is actually the old heresy that Paul is refuting in substance. Justification by works. And so Paul and the the other apostles here at the Council of Jerusalem repudiated this this justification by moral and ceremonial works of the law. You can see in our own text, chapter 2, verse 27 of Romans, notice the twofold aspect here of what Paul is addressing. He says, And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you even with your written code and circumcision? See that? Twofold. There's the written code, moral good works. There's circumcision, ceremonial good works. And those in the Jewish synagogue of that day would misrepresent the gospel and really misrepresent circumcision from the Old Testament. And here's one of the ways they would likely do that. Uh, Ezekiel 28, verse 10 says this. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. But it says, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens, for I have spoken, says the Lord. Hell and judgment is sometimes in the Old Testament referred to as the judgment that comes upon the uncircumcised. You shall die the death of the uncircumcised. That's a judgment against Tyre. And then in Ezekiel 31, verse 18, God's judgment declared against Egypt. To which of the trees in Eden will you then be likened in glory and greatness? Yet you shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the depths of the earth. You shall lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with those slain by the sword This is Pharaoh and his multitude, says the Lord God. And then in chapter 32, uh, there are just numerous references here in this part of uh, Ezekiel to falling down and being judged in the midst of the uncircumcised. One gets the sense that hell is the place of the uncircumcised. And in a sense, that's true. But of course, the Jews were abusing this. And, And they were reasoning in this fashion 
well, if hell is the place for the uncircumcised, well then if I'm circumcised and I'm pretty much within the basic boundaries of a decent human being in terms of the moral law, then I'm justified before God. A circumcised Jew in good standing couldn't possibly go to the place of the uncircumcised, in other words. Paul is dealing with this, and and you can imagine how burdensome this would have been upon the consciences of Gentile believers in these churches that Paul had planted, and perhaps some of the Gentiles in Rome, because the Jews would quote these verses and, and you don't want to go to the place of the uncircumcised. Well, I'd better get circumcised to avoid that. And this was the, this uh, Jewish heresy of justification by moral and ceremonial works of the law. Now, Paul has already confronted this position with the perfect standard of God's law. In chapter 2 of Romans, he's already confronted this doctrine of justification by works. He's confronted it with the perfect standard of God's law by which God will judge all men by their works at the last day. And you can recall verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds verse 8 to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil So there's the judgment. Galatians 3.10-13 through is a helpful cross-reference where Paul says that according to the law, if you break even one jot or one tittle, if you do not continue to perform everything that is written in the book of the law, you are under a curse. So he brings to bear the perfect standard of God's moral law by which He will judge all men at the last day. And that's, that's at the heart of Romans 2. We've been looking at that. And according to this perspective, the old, the only perspective on Paul, the correct biblical perspective, it teaches that even our best works of righteousness are as filthy rags. So in other words, even the godliest saint, born-again believer on the face of the earth could not be right with God by his or her own obedience to God's law. Even the legitimate, God-given, sanctified obedience of the Christian life is imperfect in this life and cannot possibly be the basis of our right standing with God. And that's very important. Paul in Philippians 3, as a godly, sanctified believer who's living by faith, striving for the resurrection of the dead, a heavenly-minded saint, perhaps one of the greatest saints on earth at that time in his sanctification, Yet, he says, he, he even at the present time counts all of these things as loss with respect to his justification. He counts it all as loss in order to win Christ and be found in Him, not with a righteousness of His own, not even His own sanctified good works, no, not at all, but to be found in Christ with a righteousness that is through faith in what Christ has actually done. So even the best works of the greatest saint on the earth would be inadequate for justification. And uh, 
you see this in the Roman Catholic Church. The teaching that says, they wouldn't necessarily put it this way, you're justified by your sanctification. In essence, that is the Roman Catholic position. You can look at the booklet on the book table that explains some of these things. But uh, the Roman Catholic position is essentially this, that justification involves not only that legal declaration of righteousness on account of Christ, but it includes God making you righteous. God transforming you and putting grace and righteousness in you so that you're now working out your salvation, which is of course biblical for sanctification, but they include it in justification. And so your sanctified good works are part of the equation of God declaring you perfectly righteous and fit for heaven. And that, my friends, is a contradiction in terms. Even Isaiah, godly Isaiah, reflecting in Isaiah 64, said that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Paul says they are as dung. Now, if we're justified in Christ, then they become the beauty of holiness. But in and of themselves, they are not sufficient to justify in any way whatsoever. So Paul has confronted these Judaizers, these false pharisaical teachers with the perfect standard of God's law. He's also exposed their hypocritical, disobedient lifestyle. He's shown in the verses just preceding our text that we've been spending some time on in recent weeks, verse 17 through verse 24, he spent some time exposing their hypocritical, disobedient lifestyle showing that it falls woefully short even of true sanctified righteousness. So not only is their righteousness inadequate for heaven, which could also be said of the Apostle Paul's sanctified obedience. It could be said of the greatest saint on earth that it's inadequate for justification. But he's saying your hypocrisy and disobedience shows that not only have you fallen short of the perfect standard for justification, But your hypocritical, disobedient lifestyle is such that you've fallen short even of true sanctification. Your life is so hypocritical, it doesn't even meet the standard of what someone could say, wow, that person has a credible profession of being born again and having the Holy Spirit and they're being sanctified. So you see what he's doing. He's not just refuting them as if, well, you've fallen just short of the, the glory of God. You, you're even you're the godliest person in the world. You've just fallen short. No, he goes to the next level and he says, in fact, not only have you fallen short of God's perfect standard, but you're not even living anything close to the Christian life at all. And that's an important point to make. Why is that important? That's a point that's not made frequently in biblical or so-called biblical evangelism in our own day. We present the law of God and we say, well, you know, everybody falls short. Here's you. You just barely by an inch missed heaven, so Jesus will help you get there. That is not the message that Paul brings to these unconverted Jews. And that's not the message we need to be bringing to the people around us. And I trust that's not the message that converted us from out of our unbelief and our sinfulness. No, we were converted because God, by the Holy Spirit, convicted us of sin by the law to show that not only are we just short of His glory, but we're hypocrites, we're lawbreakers, 
We have broken God's commandments in thought, word, and deed in countless ways every day of our lives. And we're nowhere near the standard of the glory of God. And Paul is pointing out their utter sinfulness because my friends, if somebody is not justified, then they're not sanctified. So if you meet somebody who seems to be an upstanding, outwardly moral person and they articulate for you justification by works, here's one thing you can be sure about that person. They are a totally depraved, spiritually dead, ungodly person. They may look good on the outside. They may vote the way you do. But if they don't obey the truth and believe the gospel of justification by faith alone, then that means they don't have the Holy Spirit. And my friends, if they don't have the Holy Spirit, then Romans 2, 17-24, in one way or another, applies to them. Because if you're not justified and you deny the gospel... What is that proceeding from but a heart of unbelief? And what is a heart of unbelief other than a heart of total depravity and spiritual wickedness of the highest order? So, Paul is bringing the conviction of the law to bear upon his hearers. Their righteousness is all the more inadequate to justify them. And next, as we get into the text we're considering this morning, Next, Paul addresses their foolish confidence in circumcision. Their foolish confidence in this ceremony, this ritual. Yes, it's ordained by God in the Old Testament, so it's biblical, but yet it is an outward ceremony. They foolishly place their trust and their confidence in circumcision. And Paul asserts that their disobedient lifestyle negates any benefit negates any positive value or benefit of their circumcision. You can see that in verse 25. He says, for circumcision is indeed profitable. It is profitable. He's not against circumcision as an old covenant ordinance. He's not against it as he's reflecting back on all the generations of the old covenant and God's faithfulness to His people. He he says circumcision is indeed profitable. In fact, chapter 3, verse 1 What advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision much in every way? So he's not anti-circumcision. He's saying it is profitable. In fact, it's profitable to a great degree in every way. There's a great benefit and value to circumcision chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Again, chapter 3, verse 2. But getting back to verse 25 of the previous chapter, for circumcision is indeed profitable because you get the law of God along with it. You get the Old Testament Scriptures. You get the oracles of God. So it's profitable. But only if you keep the law. Only if you believe the promises that are contained in the Old Covenant Scriptures. It's only profitable. In fact, chapter 3, verse 2, when it says, to them were committed the oracles of God, the word committed there is a form of the Greek word for faith. These oracles, this inspired word of God in the Old Testament, was entrusted. It's the idea of faith or trust. John chapter 2 and 3, when Jesus doesn't entrust Himself to these false converts in Jerusalem. It's the same idea. He he doesn't 
commit himself to them. He doesn't entrust himself to them. He doesn't believe their belief. He doesn't trust in their trust. He doesn't put much stock in their frivolous profession of faith in that context, which is, which is for another time. But this Old Testament Bible was placed in the hands of God's people, committed to them, and trusted to them so that they would trust in it. So that they would believe it and that they, believing it, would obey it. And circumcision is indeed profitable, says Paul, if you do that. If you do that, it's a sign and seal confirming God's covenant faithfulness. If you call upon His name, by the way, that promise, call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. That's from the book of Joel. That's from the Old Testament. That's from the oracles of God that Paul is speaking of here. So if you believe the Gospel proclaimed in that oracle, and you obey the commandments in that Old Testament Hebrew Bible, then circumcision has accomplished its purpose. It's profitable. It has set you apart, gotten your attention, pointed you, as we'll look at some of the imagery in a moment, pointed you to a life of single-minded obedience, walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Success. But only if you do that. Only if you keep that law. Only if you keep it and guard it and guard your heart with it. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If you are a breaker, so you're not keeping it, you're not holding it, clinging to it, treasuring it up, loving it, believing it, obeying it in your Christian life. Instead, you're violating it. You're breaking it. You're dashing it to pieces. You're transgressing and trespassing and sinning against it. If you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now let me just say at this point that Paul has transitioned from a discussion of justification, explicit discussion of justification, to this discussion of the spiritual condition of their hearts. And I mentioned why he did that. I mentioned that he did that because what he's trying to do is expose that they're not actually even true believers. They're not even converted. So yes, you failed to meet the perfect standard, but you also show in your life that you're actually an ungodly, wicked person. You're not even sanctified. So he's dealing here with their lack of sanctified obedience as a way of disproving their justification by works theology. But he's focusing here upon their hypocrisy, their disobedience and their unrepentant lifestyle. And he's saying, if you are a breaker of the law, then your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now, why am I saying that he's focusing here on the condition and character of their lives and not on the issue of justification? I'm saying that because circumcision was given to God's people after the fall. Okay? So, If what Paul is saying here is circumcision is only profitable if you keep the law perfectly, that would not make any sense. Circumcision is not a sacrament of the covenant of works with Adam. It's a sacrament of the covenant of grace with Abraham. So circumcision represents God's covenant of grace. There's the shedding of blood. There's the cutting off of the flesh. Not trusting in the flesh, but in the promise. And so on. You've got this 
gracious imagery in circumcision, it's meant to point people to the gospel and to a law-keeping, sanctified life in response to the gospel. Circumcision is not proclaiming justification by works. That's not what Paul is saying, hey, it's profitable if you're perfectly righteous. That's not what he's saying. And uh, so much more could be said there. But that's, that's not what he's pointing out here. When he says breaker of the law, he's describing verses 17 through 24. Someone who is so hypocritical as to qualify themselves as an unconverted person who makes the Gentiles to blaspheme. Someone who in their heart pursues, if not in their lifestyle, adultery, murder, and idolatry. An unconverted, unregenerate, dead in sin, unbeliever. And so that's, that's the point here. Your circumcision, if you're living that way, has become uncircumcision. If an uncircumcised man, for instance, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, who was a proselyte, he attended the Jewish synagogue, he believed the Hebrew Bible, he probably was converted, and that's why God sent Peter to him to proclaim the next phase of revelation, even the coming of Christ, so that he could be baptized with the Spirit and brought into the New Testament church. He feared God. So there were these uncircumcised people that were hanging around the fringes of the Jewish synagogue. And so if one of these uncircumcised proselytes actually keeps the righteous requirements of the law, again, not perfectly here, but keeps those righteous requirements with a life of godly obedience, then his uncircumcision will be counted as circumcision. In other words, God looked at Cornelius as a godly person and He blessed him with further revelation when He sent Peter to Joppa, or from Joppa. And will not, verse 27, the physically uncircumcised, if He fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. So this is not some hypothetical perfect law keeper. This is describing born-again, godly, believing proselytes who would look at the circumcised Jewish pharisaical people in their hypocrisy and would judge them. And rightly so. That is the case. I mean, you just think of it in, in a broader sense in our own context. If somebody was an adherent of our congregation, someone who attends regularly, but... Uh, for one reason or another, at this point, they're not yet a baptized, communing member of our church, but they're on the fringes, involved in the life of the church. And if a communicant member lives in hypocrisy and lives at just in a, an unrepentant, law-breaking, hypocritical lifestyle, you can imagine that even the adherents would find themselves struggling with this. And even if, if push came to shove, they would have to say, that's wrong. They would have to enter into a judgment that yes... Um, that's wrong. And this is utter hypocrisy. And that's no doubt what many of these proselytes thought of the Pharisees when that hypocrisy from time to time would show itself forth. So Paul is addressing uh, this foolish confidence in circumcision, thinking that you're going to get a benefit from circumcision without obedience. Now, according to Paul, the primary significance of circumcision... And this is very important given so much of what's taught in the church today, so much of what many of us learned about these things, about the Old Testament growing up 
in, uh, in Bible-believing homes, yet maybe not learning this, uh, this teaching properly. According to Paul, the primary significance of circumcision was never national or ethnic, but it was always spiritual and ecclesiastical. The primary significance of circumcision was never national or ethnic, but always spiritual and ecclesiastical. Now, in saying that, we're not denying that there's something of a a national or ethnic connotation or significance here, given that God set up His Old Covenant people in a centralized location in the land of Canaan, with the temple in Jerusalem. And so most of the people who were circumcised members of the Old Covenant people of God happened to be ethnic Jews. So there is an association. And often when Paul speaks of the transition from Old Testament to New Testament, he points that out. He points out that it's not just primarily this centralized religion with uh, mostly Jews involved in it, but it has now gone to the nations of the world. And that, of course, is reflected in the Great Commission. Now, in the New Testament, you may know that in some cases, the Jews are referred to as the circumcision. And so again, that's what I'm saying. There's some acknowledgement that at least in the minds of the first century audience, there's something of an understanding that there are national and ethnic aspects of circumcision. But what Paul is saying is that's not the primary significance. Not by a long shot. The primary biblical significance of this ordinance was always primarily spiritual and ecclesiastical. In other words, the primary significance pointed to the saving work of God in His people and it pointed to their membership in the covenant community. Spiritual and ecclesiastical. And let's look at this briefly. Think about when God instituted circumcision, it wasn't under Moses. For people who say, well, circumcision points to the fact that you have to keep the law perfectly. And that was the whole point of the law of Moses. And, and they misunderstand and they forget the fact that God instituted circumcision not under Moses, but under Abraham, where the emphasis was on justification by faith alone. And let me just pause for a moment and say that in Paul's epistle to the Galatians, he makes a comment that many have misunderstood. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Let me just read this verse and make a comment here again, just so that we're all on the same page. Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You see, this is where this false understanding comes in. People misunderstand that verse. And they say the whole point of Old Testament circumcision was to say, you've got to keep the law perfectly. And the Old Testament's a covenant of works. And then Christ fulfills it and so on and so forth. But my friends, circumcision is a gracious ordinance. Why is Paul telling the Galatian Gentiles that if they get circumcised at the behest of these Judaizing Christians in Galatia, that they will have no profit from Christ? that they will have fallen from grace? Why does he associate 
circumcision with the need to keep the whole law and with apostasy from the gospel. He does it because they're Gentiles. So if they get circumcised in response to the teaching that says you've got to be circumcised to be right with God, then that act of getting circumcised is a falling away from the grace of the gospel. If somebody put a glass of wine in front of you and said, if you drink this glass of wine, you'll be saved. If you don't, you won't. And then you drank it. Then I could say to you, drinking that glass of wine has caused Christ to be unprofitable for you. Drinking that glass of wine in response to that false gospel is a falling away from grace. In fact, anything you do as a means of being saved or being justified apart from faith in the finished work of Christ becomes a means of placing you under the law of God. You think you're going to be saved by drinking that glass of wine? You think you're going to be saved by getting circumcised, Galatian Gentiles? Well, guess what? If you're going to be saved by your works, not only, we, can, we can not only say, oh, well, the circumcision, but we can tack on every command God has ever given. Because for you to be justified by works, that is what you'd have to do. So Paul in Galatians 5 is addressing the abuse of circumcision, not the proper use of it in God's covenant of grace. Now again, Abraham. God established His covenant with Abraham. And without turning this into a sermon on the Abrahamic covenant, you can read about this in Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis chapter 17, you will find God instituting circumcision. And you will find God reiterating all four of the principal promises of the Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, God's covenant with Abraham, there are four basic elements. And it's crucial for us to understand these elements if we're to understand circumcision, which in that chapter it says circumcision is the covenant. In the same way Jesus says the cup of the Lord's Supper is the new covenant. What is he saying? He's saying it represents it. It confirms it. It's a sign and seal of it. So, what are these four promises that comprise God's covenant with Abraham? If we understand them, we'll understand something of the gracious nature of circumcision which confirms it. Now, I'm going to address these four promises in reverse order, but in Chapter 17, verse 8, God promises to give Abraham's descendants, his offspring, the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. So first we have the land. God promises to Abraham the land of Canaan. Now, we might be tempted to say, well then, circumcision is tied to the land of Canaan. It's tied to this Old Testament promise. And so, the imagery of it and the spiritual redemptive significance of it couldn't have any relevance for us today because it's really just all about the Jews dwelling in the land of Canaan. But that's not biblical because Hebrews 11 verses 9 and 10 tells us explicitly that Abraham and the patriarchs, when they heard this promise, they by faith were not thinking primarily or exclusively of the land of Canaan. But rather by faith, they set their eyes on things above, on the heavenly country, on the city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. 
And so in the, in, in the Scriptures, you see this expanding land promise. In the Old Testament, it's Canaan. In the New Testament, it's disciple all the nations of the world. Christ has inherited all the nations as the seed of Abraham. Psalm 2. And then in the world to come, it is that city which has foundation. So here you have the land promise. It's not particularly uh, exclusive to the Old Testament Jews, but it expands in the New Testament to include us, to include the entire world where we preach the gospel, and to include heaven to which all Jewish and Gentile believers are destined. So the land promise, is that a gracious promise? Yes. Is that a legalistic promise? No. It's really at the heart of our faith as well. Uh, the meek inherit the earth. Secondly, there's a seed promise in verse 7 of chapter 17 of Genesis. God says He'll establish His covenant. Uh, He says to Abraham, between me and you and your seed after you. And He says it's for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed. Your offspring. That can be taken individually or collectively. Galatians 3.16 says the seed is Christ. And then verse 29 of Galatians 3 says, in Christ the seed, all believers are the seed of Christ. Even the Gentiles in Galatia who were uncircumcised, they're still the seed of Abraham in Christ. So it's Christ who is the substance of this promise, but in Him all believers represent that seed that that is innumerable as the stars in the heavens, as the sand on the seashore. It's a very optimistic verse for world missions in our own day. That, that great multitude that no one can number. The seed of Abraham in Christ. Well, that's not a legalistic promise that's limited to the Old Testament. Again, that's all the more relevant for us today in the New Testament. Uh, thirdly, worldwide blessing. Verse 5, your name shall be Abraham. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of many nations. For I have made you a father of many nations. Romans 4, 16 and 17 says that the fact that Abraham is father of many nations really is fulfilled in the fact that he's the father of all believers throughout all the nations. And so that worldwide blessing again is gracious It's part of God's everlasting covenant of grace and it continues to be relevant in our own day. And fourthly, God promises Himself. Verse 1, I am Almighty God. Walk before Me and be blameless. And you recall earlier in Genesis 12, God says, I am your shield and I am your exceeding great reward. So God Himself is the fourth and really the substantial promise of the Abrahamic covenant that I will be your God to you and to your seed after you and you shall be my people. And he gives him circumcision as a sign and seal of that everlasting covenant of grace. And the imagery of circumcision points to grace as well. Uh, There's the shedding of blood pointing to the death of Christ who was cut off for, for our sins. There's the eighth day. It was done on the eighth day. Don't have time to get into this, but in the Bible, the number eight frequently represents 
new birth. There were eight people in the ark that entered into the new creation. Circumcision on the eighth day, which by the way, Jesus rose again on the eighth day because the eighth day is the first day of the subsequent week. And you see this reference to eight days later in connection with Christ's resurrection and His appearances to the apostles. So it points to His resurrection as well. Uh, it, It involves the cutting away of the male foreskin, which points to total depravity, original sin, conveyed from our first parents to their descendants by natural generation. And the cutting away of the flesh points to Christian sanctification, where the Holy Spirit purges away the old man and enables us to cut off and cast away our sin as an unclean thing. So this is a spiritual and ecclesiastical sign, especially, primarily. And by the way, Gentiles were circumcised. Exodus 12, 48 and 49 says that Gentile strangers in the midst of God's people could come and partake of the Passover They just had to have all their males circumcised. So here you have people that are strangers within the gates. They don't own a square inch of Canaan. And they never will, except through Christ and in the world to come. But if Gentile strangers who owned no land inheritance in Canaan are circumcised, then you can't say that circumcision is indelibly and separably tied to the land of Canaan. It's just not. These Gentile strangers and sojourners didn't have the outward national ethnic uh, privileges, but they had the spiritual privilege and they were part of the assembly that partook of the Passover. They were part of the ecclesiastical covenant community. And they were on their way to the same heavenly Canaan. And throughout Moses and the prophets, you see circumcision referred to again and again as pointing to that which is spiritual. Leviticus 26 and verse 40. Speaking of God's people as they've fallen away from Him in idolatry, He says, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to Me and that they have walked contrary to Me and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant. What does that mean? It means to have an uncircumcised heart. A truly born again, regenerate nature is that you're humbled for your sin. You confess your sin. You acknowledge it before God. You confess your sin and He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And He says you haven't been doing that. You've been trusting in yourself. You've been trusting in that mantra, the temple of the Lord. You've been trusting in all these things. He's predicting this in Leviticus for the future. And He says it's an uncircumcised heart. And that's one of Moses' favorite themes. Deuteronomy 10.15, the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them and He chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. So he's saying you need to obey God. You need to repent. 
So circumcision points to the new birth. It points to the believer's ongoing active killing and mortifying of the sins of the flesh. When he says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, again, that's not some hypothetical, go born again yourself. He's saying, as the usages in the Old Testament, cut off and kill your sin as the result of God's sovereign work of regeneration. So it's a spiritual significance to this ordinance. And then Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, uh, bolstering what I've just said about that sovereign work of God, says the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So, who ultimately brings this about? God, who regenerates the heart. Who gives us a single-minded devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ and His promises and cuts away the flesh and yet we respond by circumcising and cutting off day by day through the mortification of sin. These are all spiritual references to circumcision. Circumcision of the heart. Uh, One more, Jeremiah 4 verse 4 Uh, starting in verse 3, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. Similar to in the parable of the sower sowing his seed. Weed your garden. Break up the fallow ground. Mortify sin. Cast off all sin and everything that hinders you in running your race of faith. You see, all these biblical analogies point to the same thing. Circumcise your heart to the Lord. Take away the foreskin of your hearts, lest I bring judgment, he says. So that's the Old Testament teaching. And frankly, the New Testament teaching, big surprise, is no different. Uh, Paul, in our chapter, says that ultimately circumcision and, and being a real bona fide Jewish member of the Old Covenant community is not outward in the flesh, but it's of the heart, in the Spirit. And your praise is not from men, but from God. It's a personal saving relationship with God that involves you being a new creature and living and acting like it day by day and confessing your sins day by day and putting your trust in His promise of righteousness by faith. That's how the apostles treat of circumcision. And Romans 4 verse 11. Paul says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision. So it's, as I mentioned, a picture. It has, it, it's a picture. It depicts these different redemptive truths. But he says it's also a seal. A confirmation. An authentication of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. What is it pointing to? The Gospel. It's pointing to the Gospel. That's what circumcision was always pointing to. And in Galatians, we mentioned uh, people get into trouble misunderstanding that one portion of Galatians, but read Galatians 5 verse 6. Read Galatians 6 verse 15. What is the point of circumcision? What's the value? A new creature. Faith working itself out in love. Circumcision points to justification. It points to sanctification. And Paul says in Philippians 3.3, we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit and not according to the flesh. 
we as the Jewish and Gentile New Testament church in Christ, whether circumcised or not physically, we are the true circumcision. And uh, in Colossians 2.11, which perhaps we'll look at this evening, he, he talks about how circumcision is really pointing to the very same imagery as baptism. Circumcision is a cutting away. It's cutting away the filthiness of the flesh. Baptism is a cleansing away of the filthiness of the flesh. Circumcision points to the atonement and to justification through the shedding of blood. Baptism points to the washing away with Christ's blood. Circumcision points to uh, sanctification, cutting off and casting away sin. Baptism points to the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, we could go on and on, and, and, and I think I even have sermons on the internet that, that do this as just the main point of the sermon. But we don't have time for that. The point is, circumcision and baptism point to this same cleansing, this same reality, this same idea, Paul says, Beloved, now that we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves. Having been cleansed by the Spirit, let us cleanse ourselves of every defilement of spirit and flesh, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Spiritual, ecclesiastical. Now the imagery of circumcision, uh, like baptism, is inseparable from biblical obedience. It is inseparable from biblical obedience. You cannot think about the ordinance of circumcision without your mind being drawn to passages like Matthew 5. If you lust after a woman, you're you're guilty of hellfire, so you'd better cut off the right hand and pluck out the right eye. Cut it off and cast it away lest you end up in hell with your right hand and your right eye and all of your body parts. But you're in hell, what would be the point of that? Deny yourself, Jesus says. If you would come after me, Matthew 16, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For what will it profit you to gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Cut off the flesh. Deny yourself, or your whole body and soul will be cut off for eternity in hell. That's the imagery of circumcision. It's a violent imagery. Because the Christian life and Christian sanctification is a violent thing. If there's a book on the shelf at the Christian bookstore that says, oh, we figured out the the secret of the Christian life. It's just sitting back in the chair while Jesus gives you a haircut. My friends, that is not biblical sanctification. It's not passive. It's active. Put on the armor of God and get out into the field. Romans 8.13 If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you sit back, relax, and be sanct... No. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Someone who's truly been justified, who truly rests in the righteousness of Christ, will be actively killing the sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. That is the biblical gospel. If you live in sin, you're not justified, you're not sanctified, you're headed for hell. But if you by the Spirit put those sins to death, it's a fruit and a confirmation that you are a recipient of the mercy of God. Uh, Solomon. Solomon in 
Proverbs 28, 13. Perhaps it's comforting that this comes toward the end of Proverbs, given Solomon's life. Hopefully, we, we trust he applied this verse toward the end of his life. But it says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Cut it off, cast it away. Circumcision. Now, the rich young ruler couldn't cut it off, couldn't cast it away. He went away sorrowful. There are many things in our lives we may be tempted to cling to and they're preventing us from entering through the gates of the kingdom of God. We cling to our lust. We cling to our anger. We cling to our bitterness toward other people, blaming other people. We cling to our greed, to fear, to laziness, whatever it is. And the Gospel says repent and believe and be saved. And we say, well, can I believe without that repentance part? You need to cut it away. And you need to cast it away. Listen to what Jeremiah 9.25 says. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, people of Ammon, Moab, all who are in the farthest corners, who dwell in the wilderness, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Something tells me the Jewish rabbis in the first century were skipping over that verse when they were presenting their false gospel of works. Because this is true not only in that day, it's true for us. Baptism will not save you. Being a baptized communicant member in good standing is not a guarantee of salvation. It doesn't mean that your sins are necessarily washed away just because you've received it. Because on judgment day, He will judge the circumcised and the uncircumcised. He will judge the baptized and the unbaptized. And the thief on the cross will rise up in the judgment as an unbaptized Christian against baptized Christians who live in unrepentant sin. Even as Paul makes the same point with the Jews. And as in the first century, so it is today, there are countless covenant members who refuse to cut ties with their sin. Why do they do it? There are a number of reasons in closing. Perhaps they're hiding behind external religion. Perhaps they're hiding behind their baptism. Perhaps they're hiding behind the name Reformed Presbyterian. Perhaps they're hiding behind a certain status that they have. Perhaps they're comforted by the fact that other Christians rightly judge them to be true Christians out of charity. We ought to look at other members of the the church gathered around the Lord's table as fellow Christians, and we do that. But don't think that just because we do that, that that is a guarantee that you're saved. That's a judgment of charity. The question is, have you made your calling and election sure in the sight of God? Perhaps also they're assured falsely by the idea that God's covenant promise in the Gospel is unconditional. My friends, God's election from eternity past is unconditional. But the promise to repent and be saved is conditional. If you don't repent, you won't be saved. If you don't believe, you won't be saved. Read Jesus' great commission in Mark chapter 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will not be saved, but will be judged and condemned. 
Don't think that God has made you uh, an unconditional promise that will continue and, and that will get you to heaven apart from you repenting and believing and accepting the terms of the Gospel. Finally, it's really a matter of unbelief. God has entrusted you with the oracles of God. He's entrusted them to you so that you would trust them. He has given you these oracles and have you believed them? Have you clung to them? They are telling you right now that your sin that you're clinging to is as a deadly tumor that needs to be cut out and cast away or it will be fatal. They're telling you that that one of your limbs has a gangrenous sore and if you don't cut it off, your entire body will cease to live. You're going to hell. And if you don't remove the tumor, if you don't remove the limb, if you don't cut it off and cast it away, then my dear friend, it will drag your soul to hell. And I know some of us may be struggling with assurance, and I understand the, the liabilities and, and the, the, the pro and con of a message like this, but the fact is, there are also people clinging to sin that need to cut it off and need to repent and need to find grace and mercy from the Lord Jesus Christ to do all things through His strength. Let's pray. Lord God, convict us of our sin. Give us a holy hatred of it as that which dishonors You and that which threatens to destroy us. We love the Lord Jesus Christ and we pray that You would enable us to take hold of Him, to turn from sin and self unto Him for our righteousness, for our sanctification, and for our redemption. That He who boasts may boast in the Lord. We ask in His name. Amen.